We'll begin reading here in Mark 15 at verse 21. We'll read through verse 47 there at the end of the chapter, and we'll be looking at a, a portion of that this morning. But we'll begin in verse 21, and let's give heed as we hear this. Everyone paying careful attention because this is God speaking to us this morning through his word. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let us pray together. Father, as we reach in our study this most sublime 
um, event, Lord. We pray for your blessing upon our, our time, upon our minds, upon our understanding. We pray that you would help us to give due weight to what is described here, that we would both recoil at what was done to your son and that we would rejoice in the fact that he willingly underwent all of this in order that we might be called children of God. I pray that you'd bless me. Speak, Lord, through your servant. Speak with wisdom and clarity that your word would be understood by your people and that we would rejoice in it, O God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you this morning to consider the scene that is presented to us in our text. A commonplace if somewhat grim, part of life in the Roman Empire, an event known as a crucifixion. A man nailed to a piece of wood, a cross, just a few feet off the ground, suspended between heaven and earth to spend the last few miserable hours of his life in unthinkable agony. Only today there is something different happening than all of the crucifixions that had gone on before and all that will go on after this. You couldn't tell by looking at it, and those that are gathered around to watch only saw another man being put to death by the Romans. But without a doubt, there was something different happening this time, because The man on this particular cross, on this particular day, was not simply a man, but the Son of God. And because, unlike everyone else who had ever hung on a cross, what he was doing on that Roman cross was not simply dying, but he was redeeming mankind. And that is true. And it is true that as far as we can tell, those who saw Jesus die that day, with the exception of one that we'll see right at the end, did not have a clue of the cosmic significance of the death of the man crucified between the two thieves, the man on the center cross. Otherwise, they would not have mocked. If they understood And if they believed, they would worship, as we are to do. In fact, even the gospel writers record the death of Jesus very simply, in a very summary fashion, without commentary, really. Mark himself does not explain all or any of the deeper why of what is happening as he presents his, his record of the death of Christ, he really wants us to experience Jesus' agony. Uh, he doesn't want to explain it. 
But we, of course, need to fill in some of those gaps as we consider what is going on so that we may understand what is happening here. For the glory of God and the praise of Jesus Christ. When the Christian creeds speak of the death of Christ, particularly the Apostles' Creed, they say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Over the past couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus suffer, not only under Pontius Pilate, but also under the Jews as well. And this morning, and this will be our outline as we look at these final hours of Jesus' life, we will consider Jesus then crucified, dead, and buried. First, we see him crucified. Mark's description of the crucifixion, he divides very neatly into three-hour segments. In verse 25, he tells us that it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, that reference is uh, in Jewish time. We would translate it as 9 o'clock in the morning. After the, the rushed events of the night and the early morning when Jesus was quickly shuttled between the high priest's house and Pilate's headquarters and Herod's palace and back to, to Pilate's headquarters and finally out to the place of the crucifixion, all of which were very close to one another, a very short distance away, um, the sentence of his ex execution is now finally carried out or begun to be carried out at around 9 o'clock Friday morning, the Friday we call Good Friday. And Mark records very little about the first three hours, except what we saw last week, the mocking of the passers-by, the mocking of the Sanhedrin, the mocking of the thieves even who hung on the crosses next to him. The other gospel writers tell us of several statements that Jesus made from the cross during this time. He says early on, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's in, in Luke 23:34. Uh, to the repentant thief, the thief that began by mocking him, but eventually, by the grace of God, uh, turns around and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, to him, in Luke 23:43, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then finally, in John 19, 26, Jesus looking down from the cross and seeing his mother and the apostle John, the only apostle, by the way, that we have any record of being there. Jesus speaks and entrusts the care of his mother to John the apostle. That's the first three hours. But now, at noon, things take a turn. At noon, things now begin to get dramatic. Mark notes the time there in verse 33. He says, when the sixth hour had come. That's noon. The drama of these hours begins, though, beginning in the sixth hour, begins with a very 
foreboding sign. Look at verse 33. It says that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What shall we make of this, of this darkness? Well, there have been liberal scholars who, always trying to find a naturalistic explanation for supernatural phenomenon, have said that, well, this was probably a solar eclipse that took place, and that caused the darkness. You may have even heard that. There are two problems with that. The first is that Jesus' crucifixion, as we've been seeing, takes place right around uh, within a day of the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover takes place always at the full moon. And if you know your, your solar eclipses, you know that those always take place at a new moon. Never at a full moon. It can't happen because the moon has to come between the sun and the earth. And if that's the case, then the sun can't be shining on the moon as it does in a full moon. That's one thing. The second thing is that solar eclipses cannot last any longer than about seven minutes at their longest. And the darkness on this day, we read, lasts for three hours. Well, others have said, well, maybe it's a lunar eclipse then, <laughs> looking for something. The main problem with that is that lunar eclipses never happen during the day. Again, because of the configuration of what's going on. No, this was a, a supernatural God-caused darkness that was, verse 33 says, over the whole land, by which is meant over uh, the whole area there, not a, a worldwide darkness, but a localized uh, event. But what did it mean? Darkness, when there should be light, gets our attention. When it is a solar eclipse and the sun goes out in the middle of the day, it gets everyone's attention. But darkness, especially darkness when there should be light, like at noon, is a recurring Old Testament um, harbinger of the day of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 28, 29, Isaiah 5:30, Joel uh, 2, 30 and 31, uh, it speaks of the judgment of God coming and the the signal of that, the, the sign that that is ca happening is darkness during the day. The sun will be turned to darkness. Listen to Amos 8 9 speaks of a day of judgment coming. And God says this, On that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That certainly fits what we're seeing here. And if we go back to Exodus, we find that the plague on Egypt that was the, the penultimate judgment, the next to last judgment, the final warning before the great judgment of death, and the great um, sign of the great deliverance of God's people from that judgment was darkness. That's the ninth plague. Interestingly, it was for three days. Here, this darkness is for three hours. We have that here. A sign in the heavens that there was judgment coming. 
And there was a judgment coming. Not against the land, as we very often see in the Old Testament, not against the people, uh, not even against the people who are deserving of it, as we'll shortly see, but a judgment was coming that will fall on the innocent, sinless man, Jesus. Now, there is certainly yet a judgment day coming for those who do not obey, that who do not uh, rest in Christ, but this judgment on this day, that this darkness, darkness quietly and forebodingly announces is the merciful alternative for us to that judgment on the last day by means of another judgment. And I think it's very interesting that this darkness that lasts for three hours is described to us and that there is no other activity mentioned by any of the gospel writers. This is an obvious, intentional, noteworthy darkness. According to the writers of the gospel, it's just dark. For three hours, nothing else happens. This appears to be, appears to be, God getting everyone's attention, as darkness in the middle of the day does. But there is far more going on here. And this darkness lasts, Mark tells us, from noon until 3 p.m. He says in verse 34, the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, verse 34 says, specifically after the three hours of darkness, we come to it. Mark says in verse 34 that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. First note this, that Jesus cried this with a loud voice. That is notable in and of itself. After all Jesus had gone through, and after hanging on a cross now for six hours, the strength of one's voice would be seriously depleted. Even without all of the extra beatings that Jesus had gone through, uh, people who had been crucified very quickly lose the capacity to do more than whimper. But Jesus speaks with a loud voice. And this is not the only time. If you look down at verse 37, you see that at the end of his life, he uttered a loud cry again and breathed his last. But here in verse 34, he cries out with a loud voice, those words that are so familiar to us. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. That's an Aramaic phrase. Uh, Jesus the, the words of Jesus who would have spoken Aramaic being recorded here for us. And Mark, again, for his Gentile readers, including us, translates that phrase for us. It says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, it is this cry of Jesus that explains what else was going on during those three hours of darkness. 
when it appears that nothing was going on. And it's so amazing here that as Jesus utters these words that at the height of his suffering, what pours out of his soul and off of his lips is Scripture. A quote from the opening of Psalm 22. Scripture that was written, I believe, in order to be quoted now by Jesus. This is the the psalmistic cry of the Son of God in the depth of his redemptive suffering, of obtaining eternal redemption for you. There is great There's great mystery here. We can't understand everything, but there's also a great result. It's interesting that Jesus quotes this psalm and quotes from the beginning of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm begins with those words, the the utter uh, release of one who feels forsaken by God. But that psalm, if you read it, it ends in triumph, which is most appropriate for what Jesus is doing because it ends in triumph. The word forsaken means to break a connection with or to abandon, to desert someone. Now, some have said that Jesus cried this because he felt deserted by God, which is true, he was, but... And here's the crux of the cross. Jesus felt forsaken by God because he was forsaken by God. Now we have to understand that correctly because there's a sense in which we we have to understand that God could not forsake the second person of the Trinity because then you would have God forsaking himself. That's why I talk about uh, how there is mystery in this. We don't understand all of this. But I think the best way for us to understand that Jesus cried out that he was forsaken by God and was forsaken by God is to understand that Jesus was in this time judicially, let's call it that, judicially forsaken by God. And that is because when Jesus hung on the cross, he was dying a death that was considered by God considered by God's people going back into the Old Testament as a specifically cursed death. Paul mentions it over in Galatians 3.13, that everyone who hangs on a cross is cursed. Paul also tells us elsewhere that the wages of sin is death. God himself said to Adam in the garden, that the penalty for disobedience to God's command is death, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Scripture then goes on to teach us that, that the death that's envisioned in that penalty is not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation. Separation from the blessing of God, from fellowship with God and instead bearing the presence of the wrath and the anger of God, the just anger. That is, the just, the holy, righteous anger 
of a holy, righteous God against unholiness, against unrighteousness. Isaiah said that your transgressions have made a separation between you and your God. And the blessing of God is exchanged for the curse of God upon us. And when that curse is carried out into eternity, well, we call that hell. A place, a real place, but a place of outer darkness where there is nothing of grace and everything of God's wrath. That is the curse of the law. The curse brought on by disobedience to that law. The curse that is brought on by sin. Your sin, my sin, everyone's sin. And that verse that I I just quoted from, uh, from Galatians goes on to say this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. This is the idea, Jesus bearing the curse for us. This is the idea of what theologians refer to as the vicarious atonement of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we can say. That Christ took our place and bore the penalty for our sins. He did not just die for us. He died instead of us. He did that. He paid that price by suffering in your place, Christian. Bearing the curse instead of you. Bearing the wrath of God instead of you. And that is what has been going on in at least some part of these three hours that were covered by this darkness. This was the purpose of his life and of his death. To bear our sins and to be forsaken by his father, abandoned by God in the sense that the father A, let him bear that sin, and B, punished him in the bearing of that sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin, what? To be sin on our behalf. That's what's been taking place here. Wrath the Father upon the Son. No grace, no mercy, no help, no relief. This is the fullness of that cup that the Father had given to the Son. This is the fullness of the cup which the Son willingly drank and drank completely for us. Consider this, Christian, in those three hours, Jesus suffered an eternity of punishment, an eternity of rejection, of darkness, of hell. See, when we recite 
the Apostles' Creed and we say, he descended into hell, this is what we're talking about. This is what we mean. He did not physically go down into hell, but the horrors of hell met him at the cross. And wrung from him then this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me to this? Notice that in quoting this verse from Psalm 22, Jesus, for the only time in the recorded prayers of Jesus that we have in all four of the Gospels, refers to God not as Father, but as my God. God, who in those moments was to Jesus what he will therefore never be to you, Christian, a condemning judge. Because that's what God did to his perfect, precious, only begotten son on the cross. He condemned him. Jesus was condemned, beloved, so that you will not be he was forsaken by God so that you will never be. He endured the consummation of the curse so that you will never have to face it. He suffered hell so that you can enjoy heaven. And as he did that, God, the Father, the standard of holiness, the definition of holiness, the source of holiness, who cannot, the Bible says, look upon sin with pleasure, as it were, turned his back on his beloved Son, who at that moment, don't miss this, according to the plan of God, became before his Father a horrific, loathsome thing in his holy sight. Remember that on the cross during this time, Jesus was bearing every sin of every person who has ever or will ever call out to him for salvation. And if I may be allowed an anthropomorphism, it sickened the Father. Just as son, sin always does. And so, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer to his question, why, is so that he would not have to forsake you, Christian. That is what was going on that day. That was what the people standing around this crucifixion, that they had seen a crucifixion a hundred times, that is what they didn't see. But that's what we must see. In verses 35 and 36, then, Mark tells us that hearing Jesus speak of Eloi, which in Hebrew is Eli, they misunderstood, or perhaps in a mocking way, say, oh, he's calling Elijah. Remember, there was the understanding that Elijah would come first. So he's calling Elijah, so someone we read puts puts uh, some, what is called here, sour wine. They called it oxos, uh, a wine vinegar mixed with water that was apparently very effective at assaging thirst. 
They put some on a sponge, soak it onto the sponge, put it on a stick, and raise it up to Jesus to suck the liquid out of that. By the way, that small action was itself a fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 69, 21. And the purpose here is almost certainly to further mock Jesus. Let's give him a drink and and, uh, relieve some of the the dehydration that was part of the, the horror of being crucified. And let's prolong then his life for, for at least a short time. And let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. And they waited, but no one came. Jesus was crucified. Second, he was dead. Verse 37 records for us then a simple statement of the death of Jesus, of the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And again, it's very simple. A very matter-of-fact statement there, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And again, the strength of his voice is, is important. We talked about that. Jesus, still in control of his faculties and able, even as he, as Matthew says, dismissed his spirit, he's able to do so in a loud, commanding voice. And so here, beloved, is yet more understanding of of how Christ came to his death. But here also is yet more that is being demanded and accepted by Jesus. We have seen in the previous verses here why our Redeemer had to be God in order to, to live a perfect life and to, enable, to be able to bear under what we have just seen that he, he underwent and what he bore. But here in this verse we see why he also had to be man because he had to do one of those things, those rare things that God cannot do. As we've seen, the wages of sin is death. And so for Jesus to pay our debt, to collect those wages in our place for our rebellion against God, Jesus had to die. And so he had to be human so that he could die. And in this brief comment by Mark, that Jesus uttered a loud cry, there is likely combined the final two statements of Jesus from the cross that the other gospel writers give us. First, it is finished. The work of redemption done, complete, paid in full. And that final cry of Christ, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Normally, or notice that now he is done referring to God simply as my God, and now that victory takes hold. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. After the depths of sin-bearing, Jesus now, thankfully, restfully, and we might add purposefully, at his time, dismisses his spirit into the Father's care and breathes his last. And this, too, is marked by appropriate reactions. First of all, we see 
a reaction by the temple of God itself. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Another very brief statement. Mark just sort of throws it out there and is filled with meaning. The curtain of the temple was that thick woven veil that separated the holy of holies where the presence of God would be uh, from the world of sinners. Remember also that, that only the high priest, only one day a year was allowed to enter into the holy of holies to atone for the sins of the people through the sacrifices. But now that has gloriously been done for all time by our great and only high priest. And so that barrier is removed. That veil is no longer needed. It is no longer appropriate. And all four Gospels record not only that at the death of Jesus the veil is supernaturally and symbolically torn, but all include the the small note, seemingly small, that it was torn from the top to the bottom, showing that it was God who has opened the way into his presence through the work just completed. What the high priest used to have to do every year, now Jesus has done once for all through the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9 talks about that. The second reaction that Mark mentions is that of a Roman centurion in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, he's the only one that we have recorded here who has an inkling of anything that's going on. He saw, and whether it has to do with what Jesus said or how Jesus said it, we're not told, but whatever it was, it struck a chord with this Roman centurion, this army officer, and he utters a confession that this man was truly, he says, son of God. He saw it. But then Mark records also that there was a larger contingency or contingent of friendlies, we could say, those who will go on to play a vital role in what will follow. And here Mark brings them in and introduces them now. Verse 40, that there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. He says that they were looking on from a distance. And we've seen earlier how the following, how following Jesus from a distance exacted a very high price from Peter, for Peter. But by the way, let me remind you again that other than John, the disciples aren't here at all. Not recorded as being. At least these women are there. And they've been there. They've followed Jesus, Mark tells us, since the days of his ministry in Galilee, and they're there with him now. Among whom, he tells us, uh, there were others, by saying among whom, there were other women there too, but these three are named, and we'll see why. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and Joseph, and Salome. All three of these ladies will play a critical part in the history of the church in the next chapter of Mark's gospel. Jesus is crucified and dead, and finally he's buried. Finally, we get six verses here at the end dedicated to dealing with Jesus' body. Why is that? 
with all these short little snippets, why does he spend so much time on this? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism in question 41 asks, why was he also buried? And the answer is to prove that he was really dead. Get it? To prove that he was really raised, you have to prove first that he was really dead. The resur- and the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith and is so attacked by unbelief that it is critical to establish, to prove that he was really not only crucified, but also dead and buried. And that's what we see here. Verse 42 begins with another time marker. He says, when evening had come. So now we're getting close to sundown. At sundown, that would mark the beginning of the Sabbath, and none of this stuff could be done after the sun went down. And here we're introduced to another player in this drama, and an unexpected one. Verse 43 speaks of him, Joseph of Arimathea. We're told two things about him, amazing things. First, he was, Mark says, a respected member of the council. You remember that word, the council? And here's the shock. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. So we see that not all of the Sanhedrin were on board with the majority opinion about Jesus. Luke tells us that he, that Joseph here, had not consented to their decision or action. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Secondly, he was also, Mark says, also himself looking for the kingdom of God. See, in in a group of hypocrites and phonies in the Sanhedrin, here was a Jew who was like Andrew back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in whom there was no deceit. A Jew indeed. Luke calls Joseph a good and righteous man, while Matthew says that he was a disciple of Jesus. Though John adds, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. So it's no surprise that Joseph had to, verse 43 says there, uh, that he took courage. Yeah, he did. He had to take courage to do what he did, which was to go to Pilate, and to ask for the body of Jesus to be given to him. Verse 44, moving on, says that Pilate was surprised, surprised at this request, and after only six hours or so that he's wanting to remove the body of Jesus. Remember that victims of crucifixion left on their own could take literally days to die. In fact, John 19 gives us the added detail that in order that these bodies now that have been crucified wouldn't remain on the cross uh, into the Sabbath, that they would come and they would break their legs. And they came and asked asked Pilate, can we break the legs of of these people who have been crucified? Um. They would do that because in order from someone who's crucified, in order for them to breathe, they had to push themselves up with their feet in order to expand their lungs and to breathe. That's one of the things that's so horrible about crucifixion. And so what they would do if they wanted to hasten the death, so in a sense it's gruesome but merciful, 
is that they would break their legs, usually their lower legs, so that they couldn't do that anymore, and they would quickly suffocate. And so they come to do that with, with Jesus and these others, and they, we read, broke the legs of the two thieves. But John says that when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. Another prophecy fulfilled from Psalm 34:20 and Exodus 12:46, as well as Zechariah, that says that they will look on him whom they have pierced. Because when they saw that he was already dead, just to make sure that he was already dead, you know, the soldiers, one of the soldiers took his spear and shoved it up into Jesus' side, piercing his heart, and blood and water came out, and they had the confirmation that, that he was dead. See, but Jesus had already died because, as the text says, he had dismissed his spirit. He chose the time of his death. I love that. But when the Roman soldier saw that he was dead, and they, he, Pilate asked him if Jesus was really dead so quickly, after only six hours, the Roman soldier said, yes, he's dead. We checked it. And so the body was given to Joseph. And verse 46 then says, because there was now very little time, this is before the text here, there was now very little time for anything to be done uh, Joseph, we read in verse 46, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Jesus was really crucified. He was really dead. And now he was really buried. And then we have little verse 47. That Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. A transitional Verse, very important words, they saw where he was laid. These women, therefore, know that this is the tomb in which Jesus was buried. They had seen it. That's important. We'll see why next week. So the sun sets now on that Friday. And because of that, no other preparation of the body could be done until Sunday morning. That's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. And these women made the plan, gathered the supplies so that they would be ready on the third day, Sunday morning, to come back and to finish their work. And we will meet them there next Sunday morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the remarkable work of Christ. We thank you for the things that we've seen here, the things that we've considered. We've considered them so often. In a sense, we consider them, Lord, every Sunday, but to bring ourselves back afresh again to the events is striking to us. We pray that it would continue to to work in us, to remind us of what was necessary that we might be accepted by you and that we might rejoice in the knowledge that you and that your son took those steps that we might be your children, that we might be spared from your wrath. We pray that we would rejoice in Christ in this day and always, Lord. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.